You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, D'Souza, Casey, Felony Melanie, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Rin Ketzel, Long Knives Logan, G.D. Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Eli the Cartographer, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today's episode is going to be difficult. It contains some subject matter that's difficult for me to talk about and difficult to listen to. We're going to be dealing with some hard topics. There's torture and there's murder, but mostly there's rape. It's important to the history and the rest of this story. I'm not focusing on it for fun. There were historians and journalists who did exactly that. Chroniclers at the time and the years immediately following, and we will talk about them. But if this is a topic that you'd rather not spend your time listening to, you may just want to skip this one. There won't be anything that you won't be able to pick up on contextually later on, and we'll do a quick recap next time. Kevin Stroud is doing great work over on the History of English podcast, and Revolutions is neck deep in the Russian Revolution. You can always catch up with me next week. With that warning given, I'm going to jump right in. This is episode 222, Barbarity. September 5th, 1695 was a long day for the pirates under Henry Every. It's longer still for us. I don't think we've ever spent this long talking about a single day in pirate history. But of course, September 5th, 1695 is among the most important days in pirate history. In the morning, Henry Every captured Fata Muhammad aboard his ship Fancy, alongside William Mason's Pearl and Joseph Farrow's Portsmouth Adventure. At, or around, that same time, 
Thomas, too, was getting killed some leagues to the east in a sea battle. His ship Amity and Thomas Wake's Susanna fled the scene. And then a couple of hours later, Every, Pharaoh, and Mason encountered a trio of Mughal ships and engaged them in battle. The largest of the Mughal ships, Ganji Sawai, a.k.a. Gunsway, damaged Fancy's mainmast, but that's really all they managed to do. She wasn't equipped to fight a fast, well-armed, and expertly manned frigate like the Fancy. Moreover, her gunners just weren't up to the task. So the pirates of the Fancy and the Pearl boarded her. There were two hundred soldiers aboard Ganji Sawai who should have had no trouble dispersing this pirate rabble, but they weren't in position. In part, that's because so many of the six hundred passengers on board were crowding the deck. More than that, though, it was a lack of proper leadership on the part of Captain Ibrahim Khan. He completely failed to do his duty. When the pirates boarded, he fled below deck. And at this point, the fight was already lost, really, but nowhere near over. Over 120 pirates would die in the fighting for Ganji Sawai. Even more Mughal crewmen and soldiers would die, and quite a few civilians who were stuck on deck when the pirates boarded. Last time I gave a pretty graphic description of the horror that was the result of that fight. But think about it. Well over 200 human beings were wounded or killed there on the deck of a ship. Even on a big ship like the Gunsway, it would have been crowded with gore. The other two Mughal ships, both of them smaller, Dao, really part of Ganji Sawai's retinue, were captured on that same day. I mentioned last time that I think Joseph Farrow was probably responsible for their capture. And that was almost certainly bloodless. If they carried any guns at all, they wouldn't have carried many. Portsmouth Adventure was probably just able to sail up, aim her guns, and accept surrender. They were supposed to be protected by Ganji Sawai, but obviously that wasn't going to happen. By early evening, all six ships would have been tethered together, and, you know, honestly, Fata Muhammad was probably still there as well, all of them bobbing in the open water as the sun began to sink. But I don't want you to picture here a peaceful scene. Sometimes, often, even the aftermath of a pirate attack was peaceful. You know, tense, absolutely, but not a scene of violence or debauchery. Now, this usually happened when the pirates shared a nationality or a race with their victims, and when the victims surrendered. And none of that was the case here. Nearly everybody on board Ganji Sawai who wasn't a pirate was a Mughal Indian. There were, though, a few slaves, a few of them white, most of them not. John Sparks, one of the pirates present on Ganji Sawai that day, would be recorded later on in The Last Dying Words and Confession of John Sparks of the Fancy. He was said to feel deep remorse. One passage reads, quote, This villain expressed his contrition for the horrid barbarities he committed, though only on the body of heathens. The inhuman treatment and merciless tortures inflicted on the poor Indians and their women still afflicted his soul. End quote. It's that line, only on the body of heathens. It 
minimizes what happened, but this, what did happen was so bad that it was still considered inhuman and merciless. A large part of the reason that everything that is about to take place did take place is just racism. You know, the victims were brown-skinned Muslims, and therefore not deserving of the same level of compassion, in the eyes of the victimizers, that is. But of course, that feeling was mutual. White Christians were treated barbarously by Islamic pirates all the time. It was a serious problem that plagued Europe for decades, centuries, really. There was this history of barbarity from both sides that goes all the way back to the Crusades, probably. Now, none of that, though, absolves these pirates of their guilt, and they are guilty. But the only reason we know so much about this particular act of barbarity is because of the diplomatic fallout that the powers that be in England feared. The tense wartime environment was not a place to kill, torture, and sexually abuse a ship full of people. Now, we're never going to know exactly what happened on board. We don't know when it happened or how it happened. Probably, though, it all started on deck when the pirates began to interrogate the crew about the whereabouts of the treasure on board. First of all, they probably could communicate, at least a bit. The English certainly didn't speak any Persian, but there was very likely someone among the Indians on board that spoke some English. But when they were asked about the location of their treasures on board, the crew were apparently obstinate. They may have surrendered the battle, but they were not going to cooperate. That's when someone, and we don't know who, but Henry Every is a likely candidate, somebody ordered the pirates to begin killing prisoners. Probably not the person or the people that they could communicate with. More likely, it was someone else on the crew. You know, oh, you don't want to answer? Well, how about I kill a few of your friends? That, though, didn't seem to have much effect either. They still wouldn't talk. And that's when the torture began. Now, I, and... A bunch of historians have some beef with the government of England in 1696. Months after the attack on Gunsway, several of the crew of Fancy were put on trial. Now, we're not going to delve into that today. There's a whole episode about jury trials in England and your future, but that trial did not go as planned. Jury trials were the norm in England. And even though this trial was for all of the barbarous acts we are talking about today, the pirates were found not guilty. The jury turned out to be sympathetic, a bit anti-establishment, maybe. They'd been gobbling up all of those songs and poems about Henry Avery, and they weren't liable to convict them for crimes against the Turk. That's not how the court expected the trial to go. Really, it's not how it should have gone. The evidence was overwhelming, but... The jury liked the pirates. And really, there was a good argument here. There wasn't any evidence that the pirates on trial were actually involved. One of them was old and sick. Another one was a young boy. It's not exactly who you picture in that situation, torturing, murdering, and raping. But the court disbanded, and then, and here's the real sin, they threw out the court records, just got rid of them. They don't exist anymore. What I wouldn't give to have a copy of those court records. There's a whole episode about government manipulation of public perception in the future as well. 
but that means that we don't know what the pirates had to say about their crimes on that day. We just don't have much detail here. Now, we have a great deal of detail about the mutiny on board Charles II some months earlier. Because when the court reconvened, that's how they nailed the pirates to the wall. But we do know that the pirates bound the prisoners and began to torture them. Blades slicing bits off, hot irons burning flesh and pincers pinching. Probably there were bits of wood or maybe bits of bone shoved under fingernails. But still, the prisoners did not talk. Now, Henry Avery was probably overseeing all of this, the interrogation and then the torture. But there were other detachments of the crew, maybe from other ships, making their way through the lower decks. They did occasionally meet pockets of resistance and killed them, but mostly they were looking for treasure. And they were going to find it. They were going to find a lot of it. But first, they found the civilians. Naturally, the civilian cabins were above the holds, so that's what they ran into first. We don't know when or how the rapes began. I've seen it suggested that the first women raped on board Ganji Sawai were brought on deck as a Another means to get those men to talk. If torture wouldn't work, how about you watch us abuse your women? But we do know, or at least most historians agree, that this was not, as some contemporary chroniclers said, a calculated act. It was not organized mass rape. At first, there seemed to have been isolated incidents, you know, a pirate might venture below decks looking for treasure and stumble upon a woman. But in very short order, word began to get out. There were women down below. At first, a few pirates began to slip down there, then a flood. And when it became apparent that there were women hiding out on the other ships, one in particular, well, it got bad over there too. Now, in cases like this, you will often hear something like, well, the men hadn't seen a woman in so long, they just couldn't help themselves. And that's not an excuse even if they hadn't seen a woman in years, but it's not true here. These men had enjoyed the consensual attentions of a bunch of pretty young women over at Madagascar, like, a month ago and they were headed back to Madagascar in just a couple of days. In a week or so, they could expect just as much again. They weren't that hard up. I think it's a better explanation that the pirates' blood was up after a fierce fight, and this was an extension of that. Now, that's not an excuse at all, but it's an explanation. They were filled with adrenaline and rage and hate. This is an all-too-common symptom of battle. And it was something that was a well-known symptom of battle. The probability that they were going to be raped was not news to any of the women on board, at least not once the pirates arrived. And there's a part of me, even now, that wants to explain this away. You know, it's a different time, that whole line, but... The world of 1695 was not as different as we might think. About a hundred years later, in 1798, 
Napoleon Bonaparte told his troops on the eve of their invasion of Egypt, discussing how to deal with the Muslim people, quote, The people here treat their wives differently from us, but in all countries the man who commits rape is a monster. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. He was, of course, absolutely right here. He was also, of course, less concerned with right and wrong or any kind of morality and more concerned with realpolitik, with the potential political and military fallout. That's part of what's so fascinating about Napoleon. He's often right, but the reasons he's right aren't what we might expect. But his real concern here was that if his soldiers raped a bunch of women in Egypt, it would give the imams cause to call a jihad. His whole causus belli for the invasion was supposedly to liberate the people of Egypt from their Mamluk overlords. But that potential military and political fallout is really what concerned the powers that be in England, here in 1695. Now, we do have some details about what happened there on Ganji Sawai that day, but we're not going to go into it. I don't want to, and it's not really important. But it was an atrocity. There were nearly 300 pirates on board that day, and most of them, not all, but nearly all of them, committed rape. Of the 600 passengers on board, we don't know how many were women of a desirable age, you know, not really, really young or really, really old. 
but it's very probable that every last one of them that falls into that group was raped on September 5th, 1695. And everybody at the time knew it. Once word got out and got back to England, this was not a secret. But the largest concern for the powers that be back in England, even beyond the mass rape and even beyond the mountains of treasure that they are about to carry away, was the fate of one woman on board. A fate that even today we can't exactly pin down. We don't know exactly who she was, even. Most sources, the older sources, commonly refer to her as the Grand Mughal's granddaughter. This, whatever happened to her, has been pretty egregiously romanticized in some of those older sources, those that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. For example, in The Life and Adventures of Captain John Avery, Adrian von Broek writes, quote, Instead of ravishing the princess, which some accounts have made mention of, he paid the respect that was due her high birth, took her and her attendants to his own ship, and, after despoiling the vessel of all its wealth, suffered it and its crew to steer on to their intended port. End quote. Let them return home without the princess. This source is saying that he... Well, not kidnapped her, not in this source. No, she was enamored with this dashing English pirate and willingly became his wife at Madagascar. And there they ruled as king and queen of the island. Now, none of that happened. But it was part of the core mythology of Henry Avery for centuries. Daniel Defoe, in The King of Pirates, gives a different account. He writes, quote, when my men had entered and mastered the ship, one of our lieutenants called for me, and accordingly I jumped on board. He told me he thought nobody but I ought to go to the great cabin, or, at least, nobody should go there before me. For the lady herself and all her attendants was there, and feared the men were so heated that they would murder them all, or do worse. I immediately went to the great cabin door, and caused the cabin door to be opened, but... Such a sight of glory and misery was never seen by buccaneer before. The queen, for such she was to have been, was all in gold and silver, but frightened and crying, and at the sight of me she appeared trembling, and just as if she was going to die. She was, in a manner, covered with diamonds, and I, like a true pirate, soon let her see that I had more mind to the jewels than to the lady. The lady was young, and I suppose in their country esteem very handsome, but she was not very much so in my thoughts. At first her fright, and the danger she thought she was in of being killed, taught her to do everything that she thought might interpose between her and the danger, and that was to take off her jewels as fast as she could and give them to me. And I, without any great compliment, took them as fast as she gave them to me and put them into my pocket taking no great notice of them or of her, which frighted her worse than all the rest, and she said something which I could not understand. I have read that it has been reported in England that I ravished this lady, and then used her most barbarously, but they wronged me, for I never offered anything of that kind to her, I assure you. 
Nay, I was so far from being inclined to it that I did not like her, and there was one of her ladies who I found much more agreeable to me, and who I was afterwards something free with, but not even with her either by force or by way of ravishing. We did indeed ravish them of all their wealth, for that was what we wanted, not the women. Nor was there any other ravishing among those in the great cabin, that I can assure you. As for the ship where the women of inferior rank were, and who were in number almost two hundred, I cannot answer for what might happen in the first heat. I have heard some of the men say that there was not a woman among them but that was lain with four or five times over, that is to say by so many several men. For as the women made no opposition, so the men took those that were next them without ceremony, when and where opportunity offered. End quote. And it goes on like that for some time. Now, I like Daniel Defoe. I think he's a good writer, and I think that makes for a good story. But here's the thing. There is an argument to be made that Henry Avery did not participate in this orgy of rape. He may have even tried to put a stop to it, but it was a futile attempt. There is some suggestion that... Well, the men were going to have their way, and they offered violence if Every tried to stop them. It's possible that Henry Every did protect one woman and her attendants. Now, this one woman was probably not the young and beautiful granddaughter of the Grand Mughal, but instead an elderly member of the Grand Mughal's court. At no point does any source I've read say that it was Aurangzeb's younger sister, but I've also not read any source that said it wasn't. And she is the most prominent elderly member of Aurangzeb's court. And she probably would have, at some points in her life, accompanied members of her family to Mecca. One of the Mughal historians who hated the English outside of this particular episode, but he hated them more for it, even he had to admit that this elderly member of the court, whomever she may have been, was protected from outright harm on this cruise. But it's that bit about none of the other women in the great cabin were harmed that's just not true. Her younger relatives, her nurses, and all of the other women in her retinue were not protected. The scene there was no different than anywhere else on the ships. Rape and violence. And there's a bit in that passage from Defoe that says the women offered no resistance, and that, that's bullshit. Many of the women fought, and some of them even managed to escape their suffering, but not in a way that we might wish. They killed themselves. A large number of women, before the pirates had visited them, jumped into the water. Not with any hope of escape, there was no land in sight, they dove deep and they filled their lungs. They drowned themselves to escape the pirates. Others, especially of a higher birth, opened their own veins before the pirates arrived. Most of them were unable to avoid the pirates, but even some of those fought. There are accounts of several women on board who were actively being raped that grabbed the saber of the pirate and stabbed themselves through the heart. And you might think, why didn't they stab the pirate? 
but there were more pirates waiting behind him. It would have done them no good. This was the best way to escape and, in the culture of their time and place, to salvage some of their honor. It was, as we have said, barbarity. And this went on all night. Across all three ships, well, really just two ships. One of the vessels carried mostly supplies, very few passengers, crew, and wood, water, and food. But one of the smaller craft, and Defoe even made mention of this, housed nearly all of the young women and girls who were not associated with the royal family, or otherwise of a higher birth. That means dozens of young women who were there essentially unprotected. Every pirate in the fleet made his way over to that ship, and it may have looked not unlike Defoe's description. Come morning, though, the pirates finally were sated, and they got back to work. They began the process of transferring all of the gold, and the silver, and the precious stones, and the dyes, and the spices, and the silk, and the slaves, which there were quite a few of. Nobody knows exactly how much was taken here. There are some estimates, and we're going to explore that next time, but to date, 1695, we can say with absolute certainty that this was the largest haul ever captured by pirates on the sea. But it was a huge prize, a mountain of treasure. It took them half a day or more to load it all on board their pirate ships. But eventually they did release the prisoners to their respective ships and allowed them to sail home to Surat. As you might imagine, upon returning to Surat, when everyone, including the Mughal, learned what had happened, it caused quite the uproar. The pirates sailed back to Madagascar, but they didn't stay long. They knew that there would be pirate hunters from Surat and other ports of India chasing them. Still, it was some weeks before England learned of what had happened. Among the very first people in England to learn of it was the king. A representative of the East India Company arrived, and it turned out that he had escaped, barely escaped with his life, the siege of Bombay that the Grand Mughal had ordered. They were at war with Mughal India. But William III acted fast. He was going to do everything he could to forestall further conflict. He drafted a letter to Aurangzeb guaranteeing him retribution. The men responsible would be captured and killed. Beyond that, King William III offered to pay losses in treasure and suffering to Aurangzeb. That is a chapter in and of itself. But at this moment, before the East India Company, or the Royal Navy could mobilize, King William III needed a response. Something to show that he was serious, and something that might actually get the job done. At that very moment, not entirely coincidentally, there was a delegation from New York City at court in London. And King William turned to that delegation. Indeed, there was a man among them who knew exactly how buccaneers operated, who personally knew Thomas too. Almost as soon as he learned what had happened in the Indian Ocean, William III signed a commission for Captain William Kidd, 
to hunt these pirates down. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight